Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty and this week I am delighted to be joined by Sir John Coles, CEO of United Learning, a very large multi-academy trust. John shares his thoughts with us about exams. He's been quite outspoken on this subject and shares some really interesting and useful thoughts about what might happen next year. We also talk about policy. John has experience making policy um, within the DfE and now experience as, as a school leader on the other side. So he has some really unique insights to share there, most particularly why it is so hard to make good policy. And we also talk a little bit about multi-academy trusts. It was a real pleasure to talk to John. I hope you find this episode interesting and useful. As ever, I'd just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Today, I am joined by Sir John Coles, who is CEO of United Learning. Hi there, John. Hi, Caroline. Thank you for being with us. Um, so I thought I might uh, kick off um, by talking a, a bit about um, exams. Uh, you've been quite outspoken about the policy response to the disruption the pandemic has caused. Um, so it'd be good to hear what what you think about what happened this year, um, what perhaps should happen next year as well. Yeah, um, and I, you know, I do think that we could have had a better system last year and we could have had a better system this year, um, uh, even taking account of all the disruption of the pandemic. I think what happened this year was really predictable. Um, uh, in fact, it was exactly what we predicted. Um, uh, you know, a group of us who wrote a, a response um, earlier this year. Uh, you know, there was more grade inflation. We got close at a level to 45% A's and A stars. And, you know, I think everyone in the, in the country probably would agree that there should be some leniency in grading in a year where, where young people have had disruption. But I, I think the difficulty of of the 45% A and A star position we're in, which you know is also 75% A star to B, very nearly 90% A star to C, um, it is very nearly um, you know it is is really to break the grading system that we've had at uh, A level for some time. You know, the, one of the key tasks of A level is is to allow you know universities and employers to distinguish between you know the best candidates and uh, and the the very good candidates. Um, so um, I don't think it, it does that with that level of um, uh, of grade inflation. So I think the big question is what happens next and what happens for next year and how do we get back to something more sensible? And you know, there's been discussion of well, could we jump back to the you know 2019 grading and have a quarter of people getting A and A star as used to be the case? I, I, I just think an attempt to do that in a in a very rapid time frame just deeply unfair on a cohort that experiences that because you know of course young people are mostly in competition with people in their own age cohort but they, they are also in competition with people in the preceding one and you know those around them so you know if, if 
there's a generation of young people which suddenly experiences a complete shock and a, and a huge change in grading, then that's very unfair on them. If you try and do it in um, lots of stages, um, you know, and step back gradually, I think there are two risks to that. One is you're just very, un I mean, you're somewhat unfair, I guess, on lots of people. And the other is, I think there's a real risk that universities will just, particularly the most selective universities and courses, will just go off and do their own thing. Um, produce, you know, and we've seen this happening quite a lot in, you know, some of the most selective courses, um, you know, people coming up with their own tests and so on. And, and the problem with that model is, I mean, that's also really unfair. Um, it particularly advantages, you know, a world in which every course has its own test um, advantages the people with the most resources, you know, the people who can prepare their students for the widest range of selection tests are the ones who benefit from that system. And, you know, that's not disadvantaged kids in inner urban state schools, for example. Um, so, um, you know, I do think we need to do something to, um, you know, signal quite clearly how we're going to get back to a grading system which is functional and works for, uh, and works for people. Uh, I think we need to be clear sooner rather than later about how it's going to work. And I think that shouldn't mean big change for next year, but I think the government does need to be very clear um, what the grading position is going to be for next year and what the standard people will face is going to be. And then I think there needs to be a signal about what the future looks like. Um, how will we get back to something in which you know, universities will have confidence? Yeah, and it, and it seems that particularly where you've got, um, you know, GCSEs and A-levels as two-year courses um, and then some schooling missed, missed along the way and short, you know, very little notice given by, by government as to their plans. It's a bit of a bit of a perfect storm there. Yeah, and I, you know, so, so I think for next year, I mean, I think government's got three big questions really for next year. One is what's the grading standard? And I mean, I think going back to something like the 2020 grading standard for next year is kind of defensible and, and not unreasonable. It's not quite as inflated as 2021, but it's also not, um, uh, you know, an enormous step and creating huge unfairness. Uh, so I think that's a sort of reasonable position for next year. And then, you know, some bigger thinking about future years is needed there. Second big question for government is what's the contingency plan? Because, you know, obviously we all hope, and I think at this moment expect that exams will go, to, go ahead normally next summer. But, you know, based on what's happened over the last 18 months, it seems a bit foolish not to have a plan B in case of need. And I, I think government should try and, you know, articulate what that plan is as soon as possible. And then the third big question is, how do we compensate for differential lost learning? Because next year it will still be the case that some students have been much more affected by the pandemic than others. You know, some schools have had to close much more than others, not through any fault of their own, but because community transmission levels have been much higher in their areas. And, you know, children have had to be, be sent home for, for longer periods because there's just higher levels of virus in the school. So um, I think there's a difficult question about how you compensate for the fact that some students have missed out much more than others. So those, those I think, are the three big questions. What's the grading structure?
how do you compensate for differential loss learning and what's the contingency plan in the event of further uh, disruption and I think we need to hear from hear from government about those quite soon um, none of those were addressed in the slightly disappointing consultation paper that came out uh, just as the summer holidays were beginning no indeed and we and we hear the government are not not a fan of contingency planning at at the moment um, it's really really wonderful to to hear from from you particularly as someone who has experience on both sides of the table um both in a long long and impressive career in the civil service yourself and and now now in school leadership um how how do we close this gap between policymakers and and people who are actually working in the sector mm. i mean i think it's a really good question really interesting question um one thing that concerns me at the moment about the DfE is um, I think it's got fewer people with real expertise in schools than used to be the case, and I think less than would be ideal. And, and that's really because the civil service kind of corporately has made the decision that at senior levels, they do want people to move around between departments much more than used to happen. And, you know, for people who want to have a kind of senior level career that they should you know, build experience across a range of departments. And there's, you know, there's some good sense in that, you know, one of the problems of government in the past has certainly been that people are too siloed, they know about their own narrow area and don't think about, you know, wider issues in society and, and so on. Um, but there are also some quite big risks to it. And, and you know, I think in, in a department like education or health would be another good example, but, you know, many others, defense is a good example, home office is a good example. You know, people are working with a very particular service, um, you know, serving the public interest in a particular way, uh, and each of those services is individually complex, and, you know, there is a need for expertise, uh, you know, knowledge. I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it, because the, the government's approach to school curriculum is to say you can't manage without knowledge, you know, you need domain-specific knowledge in order to think appropriately in a, in a particular context and to learn well um the kind of cognitive um skills that you that you need i think that's basically correct but i mean i think it's also basically correct in the civil service you, you know if you want to make good policy about education you need to know quite a lot about education and need to un understand it so I, I do think there's something about the department skill mix and knowledge mix which maybe you know would help to to shorten that gap between um you know the field and the and the you know what towel around your head brigade um and um so uh, so that that's one thing and then i mean you know there are some things about ways of working which are which are really important um you, you know when i was um responsible for london challenge and and setting that up and, and working with people you know we absolutely decided that whilst there were some things that we could do from the central government there were a whole load of things that we couldn't possibly do from central government and we needed to have the right people around the table and you know get the problems on the table between us and you know work through solutions you know test and trial things uh, uh, get people's feedback and, and responses refine in the light of that and so on and um you know in working in that way you know sitting around the table you know every half term i met all of the you know, chief education officers as they then were from the London boroughs, you know, every half term for a kind of extended session talking about the main issues affecting London. 
you know, we sat around the table with, you know, leading heads on a similar kind of frequency. We brought leading heads into the kind of program of work um, so that, um, you know, we were benefiting from their leadership of, of key aspects of what we want to do and so on. And I think there's a way of working there, which just feels very different from the way departments working at the moment. Um, there is a risk that there's a sort of, you know, a hard line, as it were, between policy and implementation. Um, you know, in other words, we make the policy, you do the implementation, which isn't the way to get the best results, actually. Um, you know, you need some of your implementers involved in the policy, and you need some of the policy people involved in the implementation. Um, and of course, the balance shifts over time, but it's the continuity of thought process and the kind of refinement of the thought process in light of experience, which gets you somewhere. Um, you know, difficult, good policy is difficult, you know, if, if it weren't, you wouldn't need policy, if you see what I mean. You know, if it were obvious what the right thing to do was, and it was easy to kind of get it in place, you know, government wouldn't be involved. Um, government only gets involved in things where there are kind of difficult choices or trade-offs to make, um, where it hasn't been solved at another level of the system, where there's a kind of systemic problem that isn't going away. That's when you need government to get involved. Um, and so, um, <laughs> in the civil service, I used to teach people how to do policy. And um, I, I used to say, you, you sort of have to imagine a kind of Venn diagram, three overlapping circles. You know, you imagine that you're, you're in a space where you're trying to solve a problem. And, you know, you, your solution has to do three things simultaneously, basically. One is it has to satisfy the political ambitions and direction and be politically desirable for the people who were in charge. Because if they don't think it's a good, I mean, fundamentally, if they don't think it's a good thing to do, they're not going to do it. It doesn't fit with what they believe is the right way of doing things. It, it won't work. So you have to be in that space. And everybody always is because, you know, everybody's very conscious that if the politicians feel that it's the wrong thing to do, they won't decide to do it. Second thing, though, is deliverability. Can it be done? And that's about your resources and the way you're structured and all sorts of things. And whenever you get a policy disaster, whenever there's something that hits the news for being a huge waste of money or everything's gone horribly wrong, it's usually because, you know, the political will has met a sort of um, immovable object um, of, you know, actually that can't be done for whatever reason. You know, we haven't got the skills or the resources or the numbers of people or whatever. Um, so that's quite high on people's list, you know, it being doable. And there's always a risk that the policies which happen are the ones which are politically desirable and doable. Um, which is not why anybody, I think, gets up in the morning to go to work to do something that's politically desirable and do something. They want to go to work to make a difference, I think, overwhelmingly in the public service. And so that's your circle three. You know, what are the things that are actually going to work? You know, what does the evidence tell you is going to work uh, in achieving the result that you want to achieve? In this case, making it better for young people. And um, sorry, this is a very kind of long ramble from me, isn't it? But the point of this is that a good policy sits in the little intersection of those three circles. It's politically desirable and it's doable. And the evidence tells you it's going to have the impact you want. You, you know, that's your third circle. And I was used to draw this Venn diagram with a tiny little intersection in the middle. 
because um, I think that's true. I think there is a tiny little intersection in the middle. I think it's really hard to find what's in that sweet spot, which does all of those three things simultaneously. And it's very difficult to get in that sweet spot. It's much harder to be in that sweet spot if you're not involving quite a wide range of people who are going to be involved in doing the policy when you've got it. And, um, and it's very hard to be in the sweet spot kind of first time perfectly. So if you make an enormous announcement of something which hasn't been very kind of carefully trialed, it's quite a risky thing to do. A government does this all the time. I mean, not just this government, every government always. You know, it's, it's the way that, um, you know, the relationship between government and media works. You know, you have to go out with a kind of, this is the biggest thing since kind of announcement. And the risk of that is, you know, you're then pretty much stuck with it. You know, having made a big song and dance about it being the biggest thing since whenever and having, you know, a, a bigger idea than anybody's ever had before about how to solve this intractable problem, it then becomes quite hard to change in the light of experience. And so governments very easily get into the habit of defending the indefensible. You know, things start getting attacked, so you defend it a bit. And then, um, and, and there's a bit of that that's really necessary because whenever you change anything, everybody complains. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't like change kind of response. And um, I, um, you know, so, you, so there's a moment where you have to hold your nerve. And then when you've got through that bit, there's a moment where you have to start learning fast. You know, okay, what, which of these complaints are just people being grumpy or having to change in a way that they don't like very much, but actually in the end is gonna work and make the difference we want. And which of these things are actually problems? And you have to kind of use your judgment, obviously, but you know, you have to talk to people, you have to go and look, you have to see it in action, you have to try and understand what's working and what isn't. And um, in, in all of this, you know, sometimes government's behaviour gets in the way, you know, you don't talk to people enough before you do something, you want to do something big rather than something small, and therefore you don't try it very much, you want to make a big announcement, and therefore you kind of get stuck on a, on a very particular um, way of doing things. And sometimes, you know, it's a kind of question of humility, really, in government, you know, keeping your humility, recognising you don't know everything, that you need to involve lots of other people, that you know, it's better to do something small, recognizing it won't be perfect to start with, however good a job you've done with it. Um, it's better not to make a big announcement until you're really sure it's working. And all of these things, which are just very difficult to actually achieve in the political process. Um, Oh, that's, yeah, that, that's an extremely long answer. To it's absolutely <laughs> fascinating. And I feel like anytime I'm having a conversation with somebody going, why does the government do this? And why don't they do that? I'm going to send them to this section of this podcast to, to get a bit more <laughs> of an understanding about what's going on at the, the other side. Uh, thank you for that. And uh, just just curious, uh, obviously you you lead um, a very very large um, multi academy trust, and, and curious to hear a little bit about your thoughts of the potential of the trust as a vehicle for for school or system uh, improvement. Yeah, well, I suppose one slightly strange thing to say is that um, the pandemic has really kind of made me think that. Um, being a big trust is a huge advantage. And um, 
Oh, I mean, that's probably quite a strange thing to say, isn't it? Because, um, you know, obviously, I, you know, at some level, I believe in what we're doing and always have. Um, but, um, you know, what I've really seen kind of in a kind of very different way through the pandemic is just genuinely how much more support I think we've been able to offer our schools than, you know, people who don't have the benefit of being part of a small uh, being part of a big trust and you know that isn't because we're any better than anybody else um it, it, it you know it's not because we've got some kind of magic insight that other people haven't got or or you know predicted the pandemic or anything else it's just that um we've got a lot of capacity um and you know we have close to ten thousand staff in the in the trust now well that's an awful lot of you know very good capable people very committed to working with one another, um, really wanting the best for children. And you know, of course, that isn't, you know, their motivation is not profoundly different from, you know, any other group of teachers or public service workers working with, with children and young people. But what we've got is a lot of them, you know, a lot of capacity. And we've got you know, more people working in technology in HR and finance, you know, health and safety specialists. I, I think that, you, you know, we've seen very directly that having that kind of capacity you know makes a big difference and you know this debate sometimes worries me because i think people talk about the big trust sometimes as if there's something slightly frightening about a big trust or as if there's a kind of um you know <laughs> there isn't anything frightening about it uh, you know <laughs> it's just a, a lot of people and, and the you know, it's a very relationship-based organisation, just, you know, as schools always are. And, um, and, you know, similarly, the people sometimes think, you know, it's a sort of impersonal thing or it's a kind of big conglomerate or it's not local or it's not responsive to local people. And to be honest, I really think the opposite's true. I think, you know, having the capacity that we've now got means that... We've just been able over this pandemic period to just be much more locally responsive than you know has been average across the the sector and that you know and again that's not because we've worked harder or we're somehow you know better than anybody else i just you know think we've got a lot of you know, capacity as i say and specialist people who can you know move at pace to to come and support people who need it and a lot of resilience which comes from that um you know we don't have single points of failure and areas where we just rely on one person to do something and if they're ill things fall apart or um you, you know because we've got a large number of technologists for example in the organization you know they've each got different specialist skill sets and you know nobody can know everything but if you've got a good team then the team between them can solve the most problems so yeah uh, you know i just think there's a risk that the the debate about trust size is a bit wrong-headed and really we found anyway through the pandemic that being large has enabled us to be you know more likely responsive than i think we could have been in you know at any other scale um it's a really interesting point there around um the the central team capacity and obviously um throughout the pandemic uh united learning were able to support your schools and, and, and others really through the EdTech Demonstrator 
programme. So I'm, I'm curious to just briefly hear your thoughts about, about the most powerful ways in which tech can make um, a difference in education and anything you're doing in the trust. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we, we've, um, yeah, we've been really pleased to help other schools um, and uh, I think that's going really, um, really well. And, you know, again, it's an example of, you know, where you're a big trust and you've got people, you know, with real kind of deep educational and technology experience, you, your ability to, to do things is just, is just enhanced and it's great that we're, we're able to share that a bit. Um, and the other thing that's been really good is that some of our independent schools, which I think on average tend to be quite somewhere ahead of state schools, just because of the level of resource that, you know, they've been able to invest in it over the years. You know, they've been really glad to just be able to share expertise and resources um, with the state sector as well. And, and hopefully that will, that will continue. Um, I mean, what the pandemic has illustrated more than anything else is that sometimes you can give access to um, education where it wouldn't otherwise exist. I mean, you know, this has been the first time in history, hasn't it, that, um, you know, we, we would have been able to continue with education in the way that we have when schools were closed, you know, physically closed. I mean, okay, they weren't absolutely closed, were they, because they always had some children in them, but for children who weren't able to attend those schools, you know, they were accessing lessons. And, you know, initially we, we did an awful lot of recorded lessons and, you know, asynchronous videos, um, you know, some of which we contributed to Oak, but others of, of which, are, you know, sit on our website. Um, uh, and we moved quite quickly into, into live teaching. And so, you know, the the simple reality of the pandemic is that technology allowed us to, to educate children when otherwise there would have been no education at all. So, you know, that's kind of first order thing that technology can do for you, which hasn't, hasn't happened before. The second thing that I think has really helped with EdTech in this period is that I think it's really improved the um, understanding people have across the education system and the knowledge people have about what does and doesn't work and um, got people to a much better, more pragmatic, less ideological understanding of, of technology. Uh, I think the debate about technology over the last sort of five or six years has been really quite toxic and uh, polarised and unhelpful. And it's often felt like, you know, one group of people uh, almost arguing that technology is the answer to everything one group of people arguing that technology is the answer to nothing. And obviously neither of these positions is right. And I think what's happened over the last 18 months is that we've got to a much more shared, a much better shared understanding of, um, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of technology, what it can and can't do, and move the debate on enormously uh, as a result of that. And I think teachers particularly, you know, have moved at immense pace to adopt new technology in this period in a way that we've never seen before. And um, I think the openness of teachers, the teaching profession, schools in general, to the potential of technology is, is just much, much greater than it was uh, beforehand. And virtually every school now is thinking, well, we must have a good quality digital strategy in which we think hard about 
our infrastructure, what we have in schools, um, our training of teachers, um, you know, how well equipped are teachers to use the technology that we've got, devices for uh, students, how are they able to access um, uh, education in and out of the classroom and use technology as, you know, part of the support for that. And I think a kind of much sharper understanding of how technology can help us to do the things that we want to do and the things that um, really, you know, where technology would just be a distraction and, um, and is less powerful. And I think that runs right across, you know, everything we do. So through the pandemic, we bought about 20,000 devices for students in our schools, you know, for them to have at home and, and take with them. I think that's opened the door for lots of our schools to, you know, making much better use of the, you know, online resources that we've got uh, in terms of recorded lessons and quizzing and access to, you know, homework and all, all of those kinds, kinds of things. I think we've seen teachers um, getting involved in online professional development in a way that we've not seen before. And that's become really, certainly in in United Learning, really ubiquitous, you know, awful lot of, um, you know, subject specific sharing and professional development. Some of that initially focused on the use of technology in teaching a subject, but over time becoming much broader than that. And, you know, we've now got networks between teachers of you know, English as an additional language, for example, you know, in, in the past, I think we'd have been doing quite well if we got all EAL teachers together once a year from across the country in our trust. Well, now they've got a live active network in which, you know, they are meeting, talking to one another, um, you know, on an extremely regular and frequent basis. They've had, you know, online conferences, you know, these, these things have moved in ways that I think we will keep forever now um as as parts of our of our practice um so i think you know that combination of um schools willingness and desire to do things differently teachers willingness and desire to do things differently much greater equipment and you know a huge step forward in people's understanding of what does and doesn't work online are, are things that i think will will make a long-term difference to education in the country Indeed. Oh, John, I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer, but thank you. You've given our listeners a lot to think about and we've covered a lot of ground. So we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of the Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.